This is an ABC podcast. The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends. You know, this argument that real estate professionals seem to make more often than most that we really need to get people back to work. I wish people would stop saying that. I think we need to recognize how much people are working. In fact, recognize that people are working harder in many respects, or at least more hours, than they used to before. I've got a very consistent message, which is, hey, this is actually working really well. You know, we thought this was going to be a huge disaster, but we're actually handling this pretty well. In fact, I think we're kind of rocking this. We're, we're good at this work from home. What we have to remind ourselves is it has been a big experiment. Hmm. How are you feeling about being a guinea pig? I'm Lisa Leong, and for a lot of us, it's been five months into this global social experiment. So what have we learned about what's working and what's not? It's clear that for many of us, we are in this for the long haul. So how will it shape our cities and what the hell do petrol stations have to do with all of this? So on This Working Life, we've gone to all corners of the globe to bring together some of the top experts researching this. We've set up a monthly survey of 2,500 Americans aged 20 to 64 that earned $20,000 or more last year. So we're basically full-time working last year and just been tracking what they've been doing. Are they working? Are they not working? How are they feeling about it? And using that as a pulse uh, on basically working from home and working life in the US. Nick Bloom, Professor of Economics at Stanford University. 60% of workers that are working are at home and all, just over two-thirds of them when you wait by labour income, which gives you a sense of kind of contribution to GDP, are working from home. So two-thirds of the US economy. My guess is there would be a very similar figure for Australia of economic output is currently home-driven. This is possibly the most valuable weapon in our fight against COVID because, of course, if we couldn't all work for well, at least at least if a large group of us couldn't work from home, the economy would have absolutely collapsed. And so you do have your own idea what the ideal balance is in terms of days in the office. Will you share that with us? We surveyed individuals and 20% of people never want to work from home and 25% of people want to do it full time. And the other, just over half, have some mix. But what I've been discussing with firms is something that's a midway point, And it would be working in the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, working from home Tuesday, Thursday, and trying to do that for the whole team. And if you have an issue with office space, you can imagine having like an A week and a B week where, you know, some teams are on the A week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the next week, they're Tuesday, Thursdays to make use of space. But the idea about this is the whole team should come in on the same days. You have meetings, you meet clients, you have lunches, you have events, you have training, and then all the quiet work and concentration work like report writing, or, you know, maybe promotion reports or, you know, feedback or, possibly, you know, doing expenses is done on the Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the important thing is most of that stuff is not so critical, it can't wait today. What Nick described there is a hybrid model of work. It sounds ideal, doesn't it? But there can be downsides to this. Mark Mortensen is Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEAD Business School in France, and he's an expert in team dynamics. 
So the hybrid model sounds great and is great in a lot of ways. It gives you a lot of the benefits that you get from each different way of working. You get the benefits of the flexibility of working at home, uh, flexibility in your time, flexibility in location, both for employees and employers. Um, and working in the office gives you a lot of benefits as well. You get the, the coffee pot conversations. It's easier to coordinate, uh, less misunderstandings, that sort of thing. The challenge that comes about when you deal with a more hybrid model is that everybody isn't on a level playing field. And well, this is one of the challenges that managers have to deal with is how to level that. Things like performance reviews, some of the people may be in the office, some of the people may not be in the office. And if you're going to be doing an evaluation of those people, you have to recognize what impact there is when you don't have somebody face-to-face. -face. How do you assess them at the same way as you do for somebody who just happens to be in the office the same days that you are? So we now, with a, with a hybrid model, we start to introduce some, some power dynamics and uh, interpersonal differences based on just the way in which people are working from home versus working in the office. So what do we do about those power dynamics? We have to start being a little bit more intentional about the way in which we collect the data that we're using. And that's not just formal data like, as I said, performance evaluations and, and these sorts of things, but even the informal ones. We have to be a little bit more mindful of what information we have about people's lives, what they're doing, what are the factors affecting their work, etc. So we need to start putting in practices. We need to have more increased, uh, increased frequency of touch points. We have to have them be a little bit more formalized, uh, which often goes against much of what we think is sort of the motivation of work from home. We give people autonomy. We have to give them autonomy, but we also have to get more control, not of what they're doing, but of the information that we're getting. We have to start thinking a little bit more systematically, not just about allowing everybody to work whenever they want, but doing a little bit of coordination so that we know that different people are going to be in the office at least some days together. And that gives them the opportunity to do that coordination. So it takes a little bit more intentional thought and intentional planning and processes to make sure all those pieces line up. I phrase this question as, will this be the yuzu, which is a hybrid fruit that everyone seems to love, or will this be the broca flower, which has mixed, mixed views of it? Are we going to get the best <laughs> of both worlds or the worst? That was Ethan Bernstein, Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Harvard Business School. Ethan has been surveying 600 white-collar workers in the US since March to log how they've been faring in this radical shift to working from home. I'll tell you, at least based on our survey data and to some extent some of the other data we collected for this article, I'm a little pessimistic that as we run back to the office, at least some of us, and we can't all do so because of safety rec restrictions and other requirements, uh, that, that we might actually lose the magic of what we found in this work-from-home experiment period, um, and we might not get the benefits of having all been in the office before, um, because in part, if, if it's really about getting weak ties together and finding people and collaborating, you know, that's hard to do when you have to queue for the elevator, when you have to have glass up between you and, and your neighbor, who's, by the way, across the office from each other, where you can't use the pantry, you can't even use all the stalls in the bathroom. You know, all of the social distancing requirements of, of the current age are going to, I think, keep the offices from being able to deliver what they used to. And so it, it seems like we might actually lose both rather than getting the value of both if we rush back to hybrid work. 
in general. Ethan, you mentioned weak ties. What are weak ties? One of the things we've seen in our data on interactions, so this is not from the survey, but this is looking at um, organizations that have allowed us observe their either in-person interactions when they had them or virtual interactions mm. now that almost everything is virtual, just to see how people yeah. talk to each other, email with each other, I am with each other, talk, you know, phone to each other, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just seeing how people choose to interact um, and tracking that interaction data and seeing it over time. One of the things we've noticed from those interactions, there's actually more interaction between people who know each other well. Let's call them strong ties. So mm. if I think about my day, I spend much more time talking to people who I think of as being strongly related to me, to my work, um, people I know well. The cost comes in the people who I know less well, or perhaps the people I don't know at all. And without a lot of deliberate effort, which most people are not investing right now because they are busy, we just spend a lot less time investing in those relationships. And those relationships, which, which roughly speaking are, are weak ties, as, as a network scholar would call them, can be very, very useful for spreading information across an organization, for collecting knowledge on behalf of the organization or behalf of a team, for, for many other indicators of organizational health. And, and there's some degree to which this mirrors the water cooler. Mm. The, the, we don't have a water cooler. And so we don't have a hallway even to the water cooler. And so we, we, as a result, we just aren't having the conversations that would create those kinds of relationships without really going out of our way to do so. And even when we do, as one of my interviewees put it, uh, Ryan Smith, who's the CEO of Qualtrics, you know, we can only do so many Zoom happy hours and then we just have to find something <laughs> else to do. That's the cost. And, and we know that... From past work, weak ties predict future organizational health. Uh, and we just aren't seeing that effect yet, I think, because it's only a few months into this. Jenny Bryce is a former HR consultant who works with large corporations on formulating strategies around the future of work. And this is where petrol stations come in. Some of my clients already are looking at having meetings in the park. However, if you look overseas, um, petrol stations are taking this up as an opportunity. They're often strategically placed along highways between towns. And so people are actually meeting at the petrol stations. It's great for the petrol station owners because they get to give food and cakes and those types of things. And they're looking at other opportunities, particularly if we're not going to be using petrol in the future. Are there any unintended consequences of these sort of um, unofficial offices then, Jenny? Ah, well, one of them, of course, is cybersecurity. Mm. The other one is that, and this is really significant, is that one of the things that I've noticed is that when people are working from home now, they're working in their own little area. So if they're in, if they're in engineering or on a project team, et cetera, and they're not necessarily connecting with the broader organisation where often those relationships are established. And so one of the unintended consequences here, of course, is that people, you know, look just like a doctor only looks at one part of the body, people in the organisation will only look at their particular part of their business and not have the broader view. So, Jenny, tell me about the unintended consequence when it comes to pay and where you live. Mm-hmm. 
So if a job can be done from anywhere, will jobs stay in Australia is the question. And that is predominantly around money. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter in the USA, has announced that employees can work from home forever, including Australian employees. Now, this is the game changer, and they're not the only company that are doing this. And although we've been able to access people from around the world in the past, never having to go to the office is the problem. Uh, We know that employee costs are often the biggest expense to a business, and naturally businesses are going to try and reduce costs. If there's no requirement to come into the office, and particularly if personal connections are lost as people change jobs, why would I employ someone in Australia who is more expensive than, say, India? So these are the types of things we need to think strategically about when we're doing workforce planning. And it's interesting, if you look at the economist Tim Harcourt at the UNSW Business School, he says jobs might actually return to Australia in the short term. However, the problem is that in the longer term, there's little to stop higher order jobs moving offshore. And you know as well as we do that we often have short memories. Once the crisis is over, we go back to costs when we really need to think about what are the unintended consequences. And I think COVID-19 has highlighted some of those issues for us. And then is there also another issue about inequality perhaps rising as the more privileged are in fact able to work from home? I think this is of great concern and I don't know whether it will or not. However, there are certain indicators that show that there is a huge potential for this to happen. So if you look at the research in in America, only 13% of people who make under $100,000 can work from home. People over $100,000, of course, it is much easier for them. And there was a research study done in Canada in about 2011, I believe. And what they said then was it was between $600 to $3,500 a year that people working from home actually saved. Now, what's interesting about this is as the people who were under $100,000, who are predominantly the people on the front line, what happens with them is that they're not getting any of their benefits. They're still having to pay those costs while the people working from home predominantly don't. And it's interesting, I was speaking with one of the large employers and the person in charge of their recruitment, and they're saying, what are the things that we might have to do to try and equalise this potential inequality? And one of the things that they said, well, when people uh, apply for jobs and they're working from home, we may need to think about adjusting their salary based on that. And also those people who are unable to work from home, what are the benefits we may be able to provide for them? So we don't even know where we are in this global social experiment, but is the honeymoon over? Professor Mark Mortensen again. Well, I think that that phrase, the global social experiment, is is exactly right. One of the things that we have to remind ourselves is that this has been a big experiment. We, I, I've had many conversations with with organizations all at all different levels, all the way up from exco's and boards down to line employees, and I've got a very consistent message, which is, hey, this is actually working really well. You know, we thought this was going to be a huge disaster, but. We're actually handling this pretty well. In fact, I think we're kind of rocking this. We're, we're good at this work from home. What we have to remind ourselves is it has been a big experiment. Up until now or up until recently, everybody has been forced into this 
unusual or at least unpracticed way of working for many people. We've been thrust in, everybody's been doing it, and they've been doing it for their work, but also for their private lives. What that means is there's been a sort of a, a discount rate. We've cut everybody a lot of slack, um, and we've, been ex- we've, we've lowered our expectations a little bit. As we move forward, and this has become, and there's, you know, there's a phrase that drives me crazy, people talk about the new normal with a prediction about what it's going to be like. The one thing we know is normal isn't going to be the way it was. And as we move further ahead, we're going to start seeing that, that, that sort of discount rate, that slack that we cut people, well, we're going to run out of it. We're going to start expecting people to be performing the way that we want. Um, and that's going to start meaning that we're going to run into some more tensions, some more, more challenges in our working with people because we're, we're now expecting, look, the time for relaxing is over. We've got to really push on this stuff. We've got to get the stuff done. Um, and the other thing to, to keep in mind is a lot of the effects, some of the effects of working from home and this hybrid model, they take time for us to actually experience them. We, we dove in and we've been doing this stuff right when everything was new. We were in the honeymoon period saying, isn't this great? I get to spend all this time at home with my family and it's wonderful. And it has been. But the challenge is that novelty, that honeymoon period starts to wear off. We go back to, okay, so if this is what business as usual is going to be like, now we've got to start dealing with the challenges that working remotely, working from home, working in a hybrid model starts to bring in. So I think there's a lot of things that are, that are increasing. And when people are honest with themselves about their experience, they're going to notice the early days were very different than they're feeling now. Now it's feeling a little bit more like a slog. We've got to get through this. We've got to figure out how to make it work. And that takes effort. Time to crystal ball gaze with Ethan Bernstein. So there are a couple of themes we picked up in the interviews we did of executives that I think probably reflect the future. One is we've got enough time still ahead of us, it would seem, while we're in this pandemic. It it serves all leaders' purposes to try and find ways of doing what is hard to do virtually. So we've done many of the things that are easier or at least somewhat easy to do. We know that having people accidentally collide with each other, um, having collaborators seek each other out who don't know each other already, onboarding people, uh, new people into the organization. These are things that are traditionally hard to do virtually, but they don't have to be impossible. And so sort of step one is let's see how much of this we can actually do now that we've got our, our sea legs below us for, for virtual work. And there are a number of organizations out there driven primarily by the, the belief that as their competitors announce, they will be either permanently work from home or at least for the foreseeable future work from home that they need to be able to do that too. And so in order to do that, they have to get these functions of the office into their virtual portfolio sooner rather than later. And what are you hearing right now that concerns you most? This argument that real estate professionals seem to make more often than most, that we really need to get people back to work. I wish people would stop saying that. I think we need to recognize how much people are working. In fact, recognize that people are working harder in many respects, or at least more hours, than they used to before. And find some way, as our data suggests, to make that uh, less required. So people are feeling fatigue. People are burning out. Some of them are doing so because they're working long hours to try and address urgent needs of the pandemic. Some of them are doing so because they're trying to adjust and 
you know, and work at the same time, fly the plane while fixing it. And some are doing so because, as we saw in our data, people with children are struggling more than most for obvious reasons, especially those children not in school. At the same time, it was interesting. Spouses, actually, those with spouses or or others at mm-hmm. home, partners at home, are doing better because they have the support of the partner or at least a person to talk to and don't feel quite as lonely. And can you list the companies that have announced permanent work from home, Ethan? Twitter and Square have announced permanent work from home. Facebook, of course, sort of famously came out and said they will move towards it over time. Google has announced, I think, that they're now extending their their policy through at least a year. Amazon's extending as well. You just you, you start to see more and more of these organizations extend. And each announcement, if you look carefully, belies a little bit of uncertainty as to whether an extension is really an extension or more of a permanent move in the United States. And certainly in the technology sector, there are, there are increasing numbers of announcements um, of either... So there are two versions of this, permanent work from home policy for everyone or organizations that are cutting, if you look at financial uh, statements, cutting substantial portions of their real estate portfolio, which means essentially that they are taking this as a permanent endeavor, um, at least in part. Because if you cut 20 to 40 to 60% of your real estate portfolio, you're not going to stuff everyone back into the remaining 40% when the pandemic is over. You're actually planning on having at least a portion of your workforce be permanently work from home. And if this shift to working from home is long-term, how could it change the landscape in our CBDs? Economist Nick Bloom. One big issue, and people have very strong views on it depending on where they currently live, is the pandemic and working from home is clearly going to reduce the prominence of cities, particularly the center of cities. So just to explain, there are three, you know, there's the triple whammy of punches that are going to hit things like central Melbourne, central Sydney, the, you know, center of cities with high rises, Manhattan, San Francisco, London. So the three things are one, working from home. Post-COVID, office workers, I suspect, are going to spend something like a third of their days at home, as we discussed. So that's a huge reduction in people commuting in. And then hits two and three are the issues about and so particularly a serious issue now with skyscrapers is, A, how do you get to the front door? Since with social distancing, you can't use mass transit, very hard to use mass transit, mm. particularly at peak hours. And once you're at the front door, how do you get up? How do you use lifts or elevators? So I think what's going to happen is particularly sky ride, high rises, you know, 10 plus story buildings in the center of cities, obviously during the pandemic, but even post pandemic in our surveys, people talk about being uncomfortable after COVID, still getting into a packed lift. So I think there's going to be just a rebalancing of society. So, you know, it's going to be a lot of economic activity, spending, entertainment, people's living. There's going to move out of the center of cities, out to the suburbs, out to the rural areas. In a sense, the good side, would depend on the own property or not in the center of cities, but the prices of property in center of cities is almost certainly going to go down quite substantially. I personally think it's potentially a good thing I know less about Australia, but both in the UK and the US, there's been a huge issue over the rising dominance of the cities and rural areas in particular getting left behind and the new backwaters. I mean, you see it even in the politics. So Trump is increasingly appealing to the people in the rural parts of the US as being left behind and being left behind by the kind of city elites. And I think COVID is going to rebalance society a bit. It's going to make cities less expensive, less popular. 
it will probably take us back to 2000. It's not like the end of the cities. But if you go back 20 years uh, in 2000, you know, many more people could afford to live in the center of cities. I know Sydney and Melbourne, for example, are both phenomenally expensive and many people just can't afford to live in them anymore. I don't think that's going to be as true post pandemic. And so, you know, if you want to live in the center of cities, that's probably a good thing, particularly if you're renting or haven't yet bought. If you own a lot of property in the center of cities, this is probably not a good thing to hear. But, you know, it's unfortunately, I think what the impact of the pandemic has done. Professor Nick Bloom from Stanford University. That's it from us. But if you want to catch more of Ethan Bernstein from Harvard on Open Plan Offices or Mark Mortensen from INSEAD on Team Dynamics, check out our previous episodes. And if you like what you hear, do us a favour, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us and gives us a warm fuzzy that makes our day. Thanks to Maria Tickle, who's so magical, she produced this episode even though she's on holidays this week. Wow! I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.